This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are my interviews with the screenwriters for The Menu, Seth Reese and Will Tracy, director Mark Mylod, and star Hong Chow. Is that going to fit everyone? Yeah, easily. 12 customers total. How do they turn a profit? 12.50 a head, that's how. What are we eating, a Rolex? It's one of his classics. You have to try the mouthfeel of the mignonette. Please don't say mouthful. Tonight will be madness. Welcome. We'll endeavor to make your evening as pleasant as possible. Seth Reese, Will Tracy, screenwriters for The Menu. What a fucked up concept. What is wrong with you two? <laughs> I like that you started out that way. That's great. I love it. Oh, I love it. This is exactly my kind of movie. Eat the rich. Maybe not necessarily uh, literally, but definitely in a figurative sense here. And it's a lot of fun in a very wicked, sadistic style. Uh, can you talk about just where the concept uh, came from and what was some of the inspiration, maybe some from some other stories that you drew from for this? Uh, the, the initial inspiration was I ate at a restaurant somewhat like this in, in, in Norway on a private island, and I'm some of a claustrophobic person, and I did not really enjoy the experience of being trapped on a private island for dinner for four hours in Scandinavia. Uh, and so I thought that would be an interesting idea to talk to Seth about, like the uh, good precinct for a story, like a restaurant mm. can't leave. Um, and then we kind of flesh it out from there. We've we've been writing together for a long time. And yeah, there was we, we Will and I were with the Onion uh, for a while. We were with the Onion in New York, and we moved when the Onion moved its editorial offices from New York to Chicago. Will and I moved with them because we both very much uh, loved the job and Will also loved his girlfriend, now wife. So she was living in Chicago, but, and, but we went to a restaurant in Chicago called L ideas, uh, which is a lovely Michelin star restaurant in Chicago. And actually sort of a similar setup, small amount of diners uh, before each course, the chef who created the course would come out and talk about it. But the, the reason why we went there, the chef of that restaurant, his name is Philip Foss. He just, who's not like Chef Slowick, he wanted to hang out at the onion and he did just to see how we put the onion together. Mm. And I, and he wanted to see how different, how another group of creative people put together a creative thing. And for me, of the two of us, Will is more of the foodie. For me, that was sort of my initiation into, oh, right, chef as artist. And every insecurity and fear that any artist would have. And so mm -hmm. I think that when Will presented the idea for the menu, what really hooked into me, not only just as writers, we like a structure of, oh, we can structure it around each course and we know how we have to, we have to ratchet up the tension between each course. But for me, it's like, oh, cool. An egomaniac who is desperate for validation, who thinks he's no longer needs it. Great. Character wise, fantastic. And then building stuff out from there. Yeah, and usually I think when you get a f story that involves a restaurant, usually you're either out there with the diners or you're experiencing the story through the kitchen. I think we like the idea of moving back and forth between the kitchen and the dining room and you're kind of getting both perspectives and feeling that steadily feeling that, oh, they're sort of, they're, the two rooms are sort of doing battle with each other in a way, right? And they're connected too. Of yeah, course, they're... absolutely, right? Because what now in the world of open kitchens, exactly, it's all mm -hmm. sort of really one room. Um, and there's sort of a, a secret push and pull battle there that's happening over uh, here's your food and do you like it? And, um, and do you appreciate it? And do you appreciate it? Yeah. And, uh, and that making that sort of battle over the art, over the content, um, escalating it, I guess, heightening it until, until it becomes an, an actual life or death scenario. Yeah. And I, I think we were also uh, very much interested in the idea of entitlement. I, them being r rich 
is a way in. But I think mm-hmm. we're also, we were ultimately more interested in the idea of entitlement and also, you know, as a culture, we constantly consume content. We consume it, we inhale it, we ingest it, and we want more and more and more and more. We don't even think about what we're consuming anymore. And uh, just that that idea of, and then we don't appreciate the people pr- providing the content for us. And in this setting, it's people providing food, which is what we need to survive. So I, I yeah, I think- and something, kitchen, that's, and something that's gone in seconds. I mean, yeah. I mean it's over. It's not, like other, it's not like other art forms where there's something that you can leave behind. There's an album that you can listen to for years and years afterward. It's gone. It's being digested. It's being broken down by acids in your stomach and it's over, right? right? And that, that being a very difficult thing for someone who considers themselves, rightly so, an artist in the kitchen. Yeah, I definitely, you know, when you said something before that resonated with me was, uh, do you enjoy this? Do you appreciate this when the food is presented? It's almost like a stand in question for do you appreciate life? Do you appreciate the life that you're living right now? Because every second is precious and you're wasting it. And that's why you're here. And that's why that you're trapped here. Ultimately, I mean, I think in sort of an allegorical way, there's an element of, you know, the movie. I mean, there's there's some small lines here and there that I don't know if people will catch on first. But, you know, there's at one point when they're all outside, sort of the tech guys say, uh, we could try this. We could do this to escape. And the one says to what? And I mm-hmm. think the idea being. I don't think any of these people's next days are that great, even if they even yeah. if they survive, I think they're just going to continue down whatever this is and whatever their lives are at this point. And are they appreciating their lives? And I think the answer is no. Which is I, I, yeah. Which, which is like the, like kind of the miracle of this movie, I think, which was spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the menu yet, by the way, you might want to hit pause here. Uh, but by the time they get to the end of this movie, the character arcs for all the guests, that was the thing for me where I was like, they are not trying to escape. They actually I, are accepting their fate right now because Somehow, some way, the kitchen, the chefs, they, they've convinced them that yeah. this is truly what they deserve. And I was really amazed by that arc throughout for everybody that you guys were able to successfully get them there. <laughs> Sloak has made ultimately a compelling argument. And by the end, and you know, told a good story and told a good story. And, right. and by the end, you know, when he's his last I love you all, there's actually a shot of a couple diners saying I love you, too, chef, along with the staff. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And a great, great chefs can do that. I, I remember going to a restaurant in Chicago called Alinea, which is a, you know, a, a really modernist, fancy three Michelin star, um, experience. And I was with it with my wife and at the next table was an older couple who clearly this had dinner had been given to them as a gift by their kids and on their anniversary or something. Um, and they were not, they clearly they had never been in a restaurant like this. They were not very comfortable with the experience, but then that chef at that restaurant, Grant Ackett's, is a is a kind of a magician and a brilliant storyteller. And by the end of the evening, they're laughing and they're smiling and they're completely bought into the experience. And a great chef can make you believe their uh, I was gonna say their bullshit, but I think they're their magic. You know, yeah. they they can bewitch you. Yeah, I think you know, Will and I we think that Chef Slowick is a genius. We think that that food is brilliantly put together and tastes great. We also want to take the piss out of the world. So I think I think it, it is it is 50-50. I mean, chefs are genius chefs are geniuses. That's real. That's not bullshit. Um, but also at a, at the end of one of these nights, you might just also want a cheeseburger. So I think that's it's really balancing those two ideas. And I think what made it interesting to us as writers is that you know, there's the chef, you could see the chef, he's disseminating justice, but I think in the end, he's not really. And ultimately 
after when, uh, spoiler alert but when he quotes martin luther king it's like oh buddy what the hell are you doing <laughs> like, you are so high off your own shit you know i love it i love what he when uh i i think it's uh john leguizamo he's like did he just quote martin luther king <laughs> i love that one of you said you one of you is the foodie the other one not so much i'm curious to know just in the writing process how many iterations do you have to go through to uh describe food as metaphor uh for this storytelling because um i was very very thoroughly impressed with what was being served was explained in a way uh, that was impactful towards the characters and understanding uh, how their lives had gotten up to this point and also to how they were standing in for uh, greater themes that the movie was also speaking to. So like how many rewrites uh, did you have to go through in order to just find like the right ingredients, if you will, to explain uh, what your uh, theme was for the movie? I mean, we did a lot of rewrites, but honestly, the courses themselves and, and and what they're meant to do didn't change that much from the beginning. Each course mm. is kind of revealing more about character. So yeah. the island course, which is the first kind of main course, is saying not only talking about the island itself, which is a character in the film, but also the way Chef thinks about other people, the way Chef thinks about uh, food and life and death and nature and the relationship there. And we're kind of getting a sense of, oh, he's maybe developed a peculiar way of looking at the world and the value of what he does. So do you start off with the idea first and then put the food in? Is that the way it works? I mean, uh, I don't know. I think, I think, I think Will and I, we outlined everything together yeah. and then we went and then we kind of, the way we write is we do all that together and then Will would write 15 pages send it to me. I would do a pass and write 15 pages, send it back to Will. And that's kind of how we've, that's also kind of the way the onion is put together. We brainstorm a lot of stuff and then we go off as individual writers and then we come back together. And I think we did have an innate sense of the chef's attitude and what he, what we all, we knew what he wanted to accomplish. So I think we just kind of knew where we were headed with the dishes, right? Yeah, I mean, like, right. yeah. um, I mean, the chef does kind of give away the game in the first dish. She says, "What happens in here is meaningless. Nature is timeless," and <laughs> and, that, and and that that's pretty much the game in a certain sense. But then, just furthering his feeling towards the diners, and I, I think the, that the, just the, happened innately. The specific dishes and what they're saying about character are so interconnected that you it, you you couldn't reverse engineer it. You couldn't go back and put in the food. So like a breadless bread course, which is one of the courses, right? I mean, it's you, you couldn't go back and reverse engineer that. That it is what it is, right? And so, and also even the tacos, right? On each taco, um, uh, tor- on each tortilla is is printed something very specific about uh, the diners who are in that room. And so we kind of learn about who they are as people yeah. in that course. It's and, all, yeah, it's all, I would say, you know, that the one, the stuff that changed the most in the draftings of the script was I think the script got more sophisticated as it, as we got closer to filming, there ended up being way less violence by the time we shot, uh, which was great because by the time, as the the characters became a little bit more well-rounded, especially the diners, especially the diners, they became more well-rounded and the movie became, I think, I think a little more sophisticated, the violence, actually made little made less sense there has to be there's a moment of violence there's one kind of act of violence on a diner so there's the there's the threat of violence and i think that's important just for tension and um uh to keep them to keep them there but for the most part uh that's where most of the rewriting happened is cutting away some of the violence and and we found that the, the that the story the film became funnier and also more meaningful the more we actually no, let's keep the food delicious. Let's keep the service immaculate. Let's keep the world beautiful. That, and so they're kind of yeah. stuck in a gilded cage for four hours. And it's really quite this beautiful jewel box of a restaurant. But they also know that it's life or death. And that, that it kind of became richer. One thing, though, that is true from the, from the outset, and this is very funny to watch. I, unfortunately, I did because this is kind of this is our first movie and I was going to read some comments when the tra- when the tra- when the tra- when the trailer came out a lot of people were like it's definitely cannibalism don't you know that you're a grown up 
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. And, or like, or and it's like, and people were just, they were just like soil and green much. And people were so satisfied that they had, that they had figured out a thing that was not in the movie. And not only was it not, is it not in the movie? It's the first thing that Will and I said when we started writing it, there will be no mm-hmm. cannibalism. Yeah. <laughs> the food should be good all the way through. Right. So that was really, it was really funny to see that and to feel absolutely helpless in saying you're wrong. <laughs> I, I love it because I saw it with a friend recently and uh, he turned to me and said, oh, I had no idea it was going to be about that. So uh, mission accomplished for sure. Um, what I will say is that I, I love that over the last couple of years, even though I feel like it's always kind of been there a little bit with uh, Top Chef, Anthony Bourdain, uh, The Bear most recently, uh, there's like this explosion, I feel like, in terms of popularity with uh, cooking, food shows and just chef lifestyle. And I think the menu is going to be just another uh, part of that in a very entertaining and, as I said before, fucked up sort of way. But for those that have that kind of taste, I think they will be uh, fully satisfied, I will oh, say. Good. So Great. thank you very much, uh, Seth and Will. Uh, and my last question before we go, what's next? <gasps> uh, what's next is the painful process. Uh, no, wait, sorry. <laughs> what, what's next is the very... A seamless process of making movies. That's right. <laughs> and how everything always, yeah, how everything always makes complete and total sense throughout the entire and process. How quickly and efficiently just kind of moves from strength to strength. <laughs> yeah. So, that's uh, what that is that is what's yeah. next because that's easily what is next. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Simple. I, I recommend everyone just do that because yeah. it's very simple. Very you have a good idea. Someone's like, that's a good idea. And then it's on a movie screen in like I don't know, a year. It's very rare when it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see more, gentlemen. Thank you so much for the time. Have a good rest of your day. All right, we'll see you later. Welcome to Hawthorne. Here we are family. We harvest, we ferment, we gel. They gel. We gel. He's not just a chef, he's a storyteller. The game is trying to guess what the overarching theme of the entire meal is going to be. You won't know till the end. Who are you? I am Margo. Why do you care? I have to know if you're with us or with them. This menu. The pictures, they're of us. This guest list. How do they get these? It's not good. This entire evening. Jesus Christ. This is just theater. It's stagecraft. We're leaving now. Has been painstakingly planned. This is real, isn't it? What the hell is going on? We now offer you a 45-second head start. (laughs) Okay. 45 seconds starts now. Hi, Mark Mylod. First of all, thank you so much for joining me here on the Next Best Picture podcast to talk about your new feature film, The Menu. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Matthew. I'm just recovering from our, our New York premiere the other night, which was really fun. It was the, the I, I hope I never get over that luxury of actually seeing the movie uh, and hearing the reactions of the audience in a room. Well, I'm, I'm glad it was from exhaustion and not from food poisoning of any kind. Uh, so that's good to know. Uh, I saw the film actually its world premiere at Toronto. And, you know, I was wondering, because sometimes when films premiere at festivals and they have a little bit of a gap before their theatrical release, it, I've heard sometimes filmmakers do get an opportunity to tinker with uh, a thing or two here or there. Did you have that luxury here? Or was the film that I saw at Toronto the one that uh, just premiered in New York? Yeah, it's the same movie. Um, the no matter how much I ever tinker with it after seeing it, the next time I see it, I'll always want to tinker some more. It's uh, <laughs> there's there's no end to that process. Um, uh, every time I watch the movie, I think, oh man, I should have made that cut four frames later, four frames. Later. <laughs> 
gets to that level of pedantry that will just drive you crazy. Um, your last feature film released in 2011. Since then, you've gone on to work on some of the television's hottest shows from Shameless to Succession to Game of Thrones. How does the Mark Mylod from 2011 compare to the Mark Mylod of 2022? What, what, what experiences did you take with you from working on those projects into the menu? Oh, I love that question. I, I think I did have a, not like a sit down drink with myself, but a conversation with myself about a decade ago um, to really, uh, you know, uh, appraise my choices, I suppose, and really just to make a concerted effort to make bolder choices, I think. And, um, I th- think perhaps I was sometimes guilty of staying in my comfort zone staying in that kind of uh, specifically comedic world and uh, I'm backing away from any any story that involved something I was unfamiliar with or found a little bit frightening to jump into uh, so I thought okay what if I go the other way and actually you know run towards that which scares me um, and, and therefore and the results were you know it was a really enjoyable ride over the past decade it was you know jumping into the kind of epic scale and the, and the whole kind of visual effects crash course of working on Game of Thrones for instance or or the stripped down extraordinary kind of intimacy of a, a, of such a uh, of the affair pilot um, uh, or and that world of high finance and billionaires in in succession it's been a and specifically with the menu um i you know when i came into the project i really knew very little about that high-end cuisine world and and, and that was terrifying and actually along with uh what seemed to me uh, the first time I read the script was first, wow, what a brilliant read. But then that's a scary little small target to hit in terms of getting the the, the tone right. You know, this uh, there's a, a lovely, unique blend of uh, of satire, comedy, and and this thriller, horror element, the genre element. But it seemed quite tricky to hit. So instead of running a mile, I thought, you know, I tried to lean into it. Yeah, and in with the menu, you have some. Uh, collaborators from Succession uh, mm. coming here. You have uh, Will Farrell, Adam McKay uh, on as producers of the film. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got Rob Yang uh, as one of the actors. Reed Bernie, I know, was in an episode of Succession, but not one that you directed. Uh, cool. But yet at the same time, when I'm watching the menu, I keep saying to myself, man, Mark just, to a certain extent, it feels like it is your comfort zone due to the types of people that mm-hmm. occupy this film. Uh, would you say that that was uh, a plus to counteract the unfamiliarity with the high cuisine world? Was you understood these people? Oh yeah, that was um, that. First of all, the idea of working with a big ensemble cast is very much my happy place, um, and particularly and 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 with flawed characters. You know, it's, you know, on the surface, a, a lot of our characters in that dining room are not the most lovely people. Um, but that, yeah, that has, I suppose, unwittingly become a bit of a sweet spot, but which taps into my, my, you know, my way of working with any storytelling is to is to f- explore the flaws in characters because, of course, we're all flawed, um, and I, and I find that really interesting to give context to people's bad behaviour, you know, whether it be. You know, a chef, you know, a, a, a big uh, kind of bonding point with Rafe and I when we first back, spoke about his character, Chef Slowick, who obviously reigns over this world, um, mm-hmm. w- was not to, you know, create this movie baddie, baddie, this madman, but but to actually give the foundation of him as, a, as an artist who, who has lost his way, an artist in pain, uh, somebody consumed with self-loathing. And we both related to that for, you know, various bad choices we all make throughout our lives. Um, and likewise with the diners, you know, rather than just lean into the straight, eat the rich, isn't it, you know, isn't it fun to skewer horrible rich people? Um, that was a, it is fun undoubtedly, but <laughs> also a little bit reductive. And, and, and I wanted to also, have a little more nuanced approach to that and actually perhaps you know for me and the audience to actually enjoy their bad behavior but also feel a tinge of uh of compassion for them and see that kind of peel back their vulnerabilities a little bit yeah definitely and one of the interesting things i find about this movie in particular is that there's established backstories for each one of these characters but yet none of those backstories are ever shown through flashback and we get pieces of information revealed throughout the course of the film about uh what each person has done which has maybe led to them being in this situation um can you just talk to me a little bit about any kind of shaping that the story took whether it was uh during the shooting or in the editing process was there a a, like a longer cut of this originally that you had to like say all right we're going to 
peel some stuff out of this and let mm. the audience kind of do a little bit of work to put the pieces together themselves about who these characters are. Yeah, for, I mean the the original, you know, when we first put the cut together in the edit, it was uh, it was a mini series. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, so, and of course, Peter, but the way I, I'm I'm a huge fan of Robert Altman, so the way I work with the cast is that everybody on is on set all the time, every day. Mm-hmm everybody's mic'd up and and once we get to the end of the scene you know i don't call cut i i, I see where it goes really and and that was my the kind of contract i made with the with the cast to work this way that they you know they would continue to explore the the the, the scene and what comes out of it is you know can be really revelatory um and really, it's very theatrical actually yeah 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 it is, um, and and that altman way I, it also gives me moments and insights that i don't expect and and, and it's a and it gives a sense of spontaneity because I never ask him for the same thing twice on the set. So as a result of that, um, you know, the, the, the cut was very long. What I learned with just showing the early cut to a, you know, a few trusted friends was that uh, it was perhaps kind of bombarding the audience with just too much information in, in a in a quite a conscious effort to give us, you know, cram as much backstory, particularly for the chef actually, uh, and and the whole setup it, as much as possible. And it became very clear very quickly that the audience much preferred a little less and actually fill in the gaps and actually drip feed that information into and that kind of front of seats you know foot forward way of watching and connecting the dots for yourself rather than having all kind of rammed down your throat initially so there was a there was a balance to find there in the editorial process and and then it became just about sculpting the pace of the ride the thing that the cinematic ride the thing that i loved so much that first time i read the script photographing food is like its own art form you see it in commercials all the time and you say to yourself my god i've never seen food look so good ever in my life and you have a couple of shots like this in this film i'm not sure if they were you or first ad second ad or anything like that but can you just talk about like the process for what goes into making food look so damn good on camera yeah, first thing, you know, for, for any of that world, you know, apart from my own kind of deep dive into researching the end of high-end cuisine, it was my first instinct to just get the very best people in the world and collaborate with them. So the first thing I did was send the script to Dominique Crenn, this brilliant three Michelin star chef and who works out of San Francisco, and, and she loved the script and came aboard as uh, and worked with her team and with the local team in Savannah, Georgia, to create this, you know, beautiful food. Um, so then... Uh, and a very authentic running of the kitchen. We also actually had a boot camp to, you know, so that everybody, anything that anybody was doing in the kitchen at any time was completely authentic to what should be done to prepare our, our specific tasting menu. And the next thing to do really was actually to, to again, you know, if you're going to steal from the best, I've been what devouring really um, Chef's Table, um, David Gelb's brilliant series, and the way they photographed the food in this beautiful, contemporary, extraordinary way with such luxury and texture. Um, which and I thought of okay so maybe just ask the best person so I got in contact with David he loved the project we showed him a rough cut of it and um and he came aboard and shot maybe half a dozen of those real foodie porn shots that I couldn't even imagine how to get that <laughs> he and Will Basanta his director of photography they came in it was like they could do it in 10 minutes it was extraordinary they're just the yep, light goes there boom 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 and create these extraordinary shots that really raised the level of the whole kind of satirical balance of the film for me. So it's just fantastic to work with those people. That's great. Uh, and also, too, you know, in going back to the cast here, the characters, this is where I'm going to get into a little bit of spoiler territory. So for anyone that hasn't seen the menu, please, by all means, this is the part to walk away. Uh, I want to know how you were able to chart the trajectory of getting all the characters to a place of acceptance by the end of this film, because they're not desperately fighting to get out of that room. And I find that to be just so incredible. I imagine that there had to be lots of conversations about, is this working? Have we succeeded in getting everyone to a place where this will make sense to the audience? And what is the message that we're ultimately trying to convey here? The big inspiration for me on that particular arc for our diners was was rewatching Bunuel's brilliant film, The Exterminating Angel. Oh, great movie! Yeah, and the thing I took away from it, I remember being knocked out when I first saw it and revisited it pretty immediately after reading the script. Um, 
was the the way that his characters are imbued with this dawning sense of their own culpability in, in the inequality of their society. And, and uh, this seemed to me an incredibly important and a really interesting arc to follow, guided by that whispering brilliance of Sheslowick, that small persuasive uh, uh, dripping into their unconsciousness that any great cult leader is able to do just to, to really see them. Yeah. And really guided by his words, course by course, to course they walk into this dining room so full of their own entitlement and, 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 and sense of exclusivity. And then course by course through those whisperings, we're peeling back the layers of, 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 of that ego um, and, and finding again that vulnerability and that innocence of the characters. So, so a point that is, no one could argue there's almost an, a, a perverse kind of gratitude for, from them to, to being peeled back and, and to find their their younger more ideological selves by the end of the by the end of the evening would you say that that is what anya tiller joy's character does to ray fines at the end is she does it in one course peels mm-hmm. back those layers on him taps into some sort of pure innocence that he once felt back when he loved this art form and that's what ultimately gains his respect to allow her to walk freely Yes, uh, I would say that was exactly the intent, you know, coupled with actually perhaps a slightly harder nose sense of actually in, in terms of the chess match, the duel between them, the ideological duel between them, is that she basically manipulates him. Uh, he certainly sees that and allows himself to be manipulated. But certainly if you see it as a, almost an elaborate escape room that she, you know, she finds the code to to to, to crack his psyche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I love that catharsis at the end. And yeah. I found that to be very just incredibly psychologically fascinating overall. Uh, I know this is maybe an impossible question to answer here, but if you could choose one of a character to walk out of that room with Anya Taylor-Joy, who who comes the closest? I know none of them are really that redeemable for the most part, but who would you say uh, deserve to maybe get a second chance? Uh, J- Judith Light's character, Mrs. Liebrand, um, is it is um I mean I, I think is probably an extension of my adoration for Judith and and her whole kind of body of work and just she is such an extraordinary person as they all were but her character is such a relative innocent she feels like a a little bit of collaborate collateral damage maybe yeah uh, you know a, a a second kind of spring to go out into the world without Mr. Liebrand and you know sow some wild oats and have a great time <laughs> I kind of got that sense too with uh, Amy. Uh, Carrero's character to a certain extent as well with John Leguizamo, where you have like these these enablers uh, that are also dining with uh, the people that really, truly do deserve to be there. So very, very interesting overall to, like I said, just chart those uh, those trajectories for those characters and ultimately where they all end up by the end. Uh, I do want to end by asking. Best restaurant you ever ate at and what made it so fantastic? Oh, man, that's a tricky one. I don't know the name of the restaurant. My, I went to a restaurant in northern Spain, up in the Pyrenees, with David and Dan, the writers of Game of Thrones. It was a quite a simple place in a tiny little village, where surrounded by mountains, um, the the chef there has been working there for must be nearly thirty years. Everything wow. is grilled. Every every single course is grilled using different woods and different um, different flavors. It was mind boggling. It's the the one time I think in my life where a real kind of high-end, high-cuisine meal has really blown me away. This tiny little dish appears about the size of an egg cup with garden peas in it. And I'm also almost laughing because it seems so ridiculous. It's arrived with this great pomp. And then you eat one and your mouth just goes, Whoa! It was just- <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, food ultimately doesn't last forever as it dissolves in our bellies, but film does, which is fantastic. So you've made the menu here and it's going to continue, I think, to be rewatched and enjoyed by people, especially ones with, as I like to say, fucked up taste. Uh, and I, I, I congratulate you here. Um, I thought this was a really, really tremendous uh, film from you. And I can't wait to see whether it's film or television, what it is that you do next. Are, are you allowed to tell us what you what you got coming up next? But, you know, we're in the middle of shooting season four of Succession at the moment. So that's uh, that's I'm pretty wrapped up in that for a little while. How, so. how did I like forget that? Of course. duh. <laughs> I, I love that show so much. I can't wait to see what you guys have cooked up for it, because that to me is 
you know, I, I would always tell people it's Game of Thrones without the swords and dragons. It's <laughs> that's so true. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's a really entertaining, great show. And I'm very happy for all the work that you guys have done. I'm sure you're all very proud, too, of its success. So can't wait to see what you got, uh, what you guys got in store. Thank oh. you so much again for the time. I really appreciate it here, Mark. Oh, it's lovely talking to you. Thanks so much, Matthew. Okay, take care. All right. Take care. Bye. This is what you're paying for. Get out of my way. It's all part of the menu. It's okay. No, we're going to die today. Yes, we are. Yeah. Happy birthday to you. You told them it was my birthday? Seemed funny about three hours ago. Hong Chao, what a pleasure it is to be speaking with you and what a year to do it with as well. You're having just such an amazing year, I feel, with showing up, the whale and with the menu as well. How are you feeling about all of it? I'm feeling so grateful. I'm feeling excited that the movies are being well received. You know, when you're working on these sort of weird, I don't know what the word for them is, art house movies, you mm-hmm. know, don't know how they're going to be received like with the whale uh i remember darren saying this movie is like for eight people i don't know who's gonna watch who's gonna want to watch and he was just you know because everybody thinks that directors especially uh ones who are considered veteran directors or acclaimed directors people always assume that they're so full of themselves and uh uh you know assume that their vision is is um going to be something that everybody is interested in and that's not true at all you know they they definitely have moments of like self-doubt and um and you know, those are very humanizing moments <laughs> when, when you see that. Um, I, I, I've just been really lucky getting to work with the people that I've, I've worked with. It took a while for me to get my acting career going, but um, I, I'm just thrilled. And then none of it is by design. That, that's that's mm-hmm. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Sometimes just the way the things just fall into place. And you recently received the Gotham Award nomination for your performance in The Whale. Congratulations on that. There's been uh, award season buzz talk about that film in general. And the menu, of course, it got a great uh, reception out of Toronto, which is where I saw it. I had such an amazing time uh, with this movie. I don't know what that says about me, that I take pleasure in such sadistic delights. Uh, But do you uh, also get similar pleasures out of movies like this? that just enjoy putting people through the ringer in these torturous ways? <laughs> I had never worked on something this dark and twisted. Um, mm-hmm. I remember reading it. I was in Portland shooting Showing Up, which is wildly different from the menu. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, it made me laugh. It was disturbing. It uh, shocked me. But I think what ultimately drew me to the the project was that it also had moments of great poignancy. And uh, I knew that Mark Mylod could bring that out and emphasize that um, he does such a wonderful job with with exactly that on Succession, where it's filled with unlikable characters. And yet um, there, there are just there's heartbreaking moments on that show. And it's so unexpected. 
I completely agree. And I feel the same way about watching the menu as well. So much so that there are times where I'm watching it and I'm like, are we sure this isn't a succession spinoff to a certain degree or another? But I mean, you, you pretty much answered my next question, which was going to be, what was your reaction when you read uh, the screenplay? Did you audition for this or did Mark Mylot approach you? How did you come aboard the project? Well, I was really lucky. They, um, It was just a, an offer and I, I said yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually... Well, actually, I I will be honest. I had a difficult time um, with 2021 because I I had just had a baby and I was pregnant during the pandemic and I had my first child. Congratulations. And, And I was really looking forward to just staying at home and, you know, being with this little nugget because I had waited a really long time to be a parent and I wanted that to be my priority. But these really amazing um, offers came in and I couldn't say no to them. Um, so 2021 was a really busy year for me. I worked on the whale first and then I, I worked on showing up. And with each one, I, even though I knew that it was amazing, my initial knee-jerk reaction was no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm tired. I just want to stay at home and and uh, be with the baby. But the <laughs> filmmakers were so incredible, and and everybody working on the movie was incredible. So it was, you know, I eventually obviously came around to doing them. But yeah, I, I was just surprised by how much um, parenthood shifted my priorities. You know, not that I'm not passionate about the work that I do and, and put my all into it, but it is, I guess the hesitancy does come from me wondering, like, can I do it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And like when I got the script for the whale and I read it, I, it was so much. And I, I thought, I don't know if I can do this, like, you know, at this point um, in my life. And, um, and, you know, thankfully I, I threw my hat in the rain and, and, uh, you know, had uh, amazing material that makes it really easy, you know, to, to dive into. But after the, after the whale and after showing up, I, I got the script for the menu. Um, And again, it was like, I couldn't, (laughs) I couldn't wrap my mind around having to travel from Portland to Savannah because (laughs) it was still, you know, when COVID was, um, definitely still a thing and uh we were being very careful so we actually drove from uh la to new york and then new york to portland wow and to savannah because we were trying to be really safe and keep this little covid bubble going um because we didn't want to fly we didn't want to stay at hotels (laughs) we were so so careful so we bought a minivan (laughs) (laughs) and we rented airbnbs um, and we were careful we would rent them for two nights even though we were staying only one night so we would make sure nobody was there the night before I mean it was was the whole thing so I was I just remember being really busy really tired but really fulfilled um, during 2021 um Oh, and then when I was in Savannah doing the menu, I flew to Spain to, to do Wes Anderson's movie. So it was just like a crazy, a wow. crazy I could not have dreamed up uh, for myself. It was, it made, it, like, I, I'm still amazed by it, even, even now that I'm looking back on it, having done, done all of that, I look back and I think, wow, that was that that's crazy that I did that. Well, if I know a thing or two about award season in general, I know that you're going to have a lot more travel dates over the next uh, two or three months or so, probably. So there's more to come on that. But are, are you planning on taking a bit of a rest then in 2023 or do you have more offers on the table? Well, right now I'm shooting in New Orleans um, on Yorgos Lanthimos's uh, movie. Uh, mm-hmm. That's an incredible experience. I uh I, I, I've loved all of his films and he's one of those filmmakers who I'm I've kept up with and and am excited to see each movie that he has coming out so I was again like very uh, <laughs> thrilled and and shocked that I just got a email out of the blue from from him um and apparently he had seen showing up Kelly Reichardt's movie and 
asked me to be a part of of uh, and which is the one we're shooting now. So I just, again, I feel really really grateful that everything's just kind of happening organically for me. That I'm working with really incredible people, um, but it's. Mm-hmm you know, for any superficial reasons, like I have millions of followers or something like that. I, it's just based on the work. And so it, it's, uh, you know, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm doing things right, even though maybe it's not conventional. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? The work speaks for itself, I think, at the end of the day. Can I get your thoughts, too, on just this explosion that's happened over the last couple of years with Asian representation, like in Hollywood in general, uh, embracing movies like Parasite, Minari, uh, Squid Game, and just seeing, uh, I think, just more roles really open up for the community in Hollywood. Are, are you sensing that as well? And uh, just how do, how do you feel about uh, this uh, right now? where we're at I think I'm in a different position than you what you do I think you're able to sort of um, you know have your ears to the ground and and sort of connect dots in a different way than than Mm -hmm. I may think I just kind of have my blinders on and I'm just doing the work but I'm really happy um that there is as you say some sort of explosion or or uh um different um mindset or acceptance of of uh, seeing different types of people playing bigger roles or being uh featured more and mm-hmm. being more prominent in in movies and and in television so i'm really happy to to hear that i don't know exactly how it happened or what the reason was but i'm 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 here for it i i i love it um and, and not just for Asians, but for for African Americans, for you know, and and you know, with Coda last year, with with people with uh, uh, different abilities. So mm-hmm. I'm 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 happy for it all. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, can, and I also want to ask too about the menu uh, specifically. You're playing a, a, a right-hand woman uh, to Ray Fiennes' character in this story, almost like an enforcer type, if you will, but one that uh, doesn't use uh, n- necessarily uh, the most physically imposing uh, stature, but yet there is like this sharp dagger, like poise with Elsa that I really, really love. There's like this precision with the way she carries herself, the way that she speaks, and it's frightening how calm her demeanor is uh, throughout the film. Can you talk to me a little bit about, uh, was there any kind of established backstory for this character? Because I feel like there was, but the movie only adds like subtle hints throughout as to who each character is, if that makes sense. When I read the script, um, it was apparent to me that there wasn't a big monologue where Elsa gets to explain who she is and why she's there. So that was something that I had to talk to Mark about where we had to Mm -hmm. figure how do we lift this character from the page? I know as a function of the plot and of the story, I know what she, what she does, but I think for an audience to care about what she's doing, I think they have to be interested in her. And so how can we, how can we do that? And I was in Portland, Oregon, shooting, showing up at the time, and the story was set, or the restaurant was set in the Pacific Northwest, and I was just inspired by all of the funky people that I was seeing around me in Portland, and I sent Mark some inspiration photos of, you know, just how I thought maybe like her hair and her appearance should be. And he's he's very uh, polite and, you know, basically told me no, but in like a very polite and understanding way. And I was, you know, kind of stubborn and just dug my heels in a little. <laughs> you, you know, because he and the writers felt like Elsa should be very plain and almost blend into the background and not. Mm way and that was there's nothing wrong with that either but I just felt like I really wanted to show glimpses of who she is outside of the restaurant or who she was you know um and I think appearance has a lot to do with that in terms of like hairstyle and and so you know I maybe didn't go as far as I as I wanted to but you know I I think um 
I think it was a good compromise. Like instead of shaving my eyebrows, I bleached my eyebrows. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you got a good fight scene uh, with Anya Taylor-Joy out of it, too, here. How much of that is you versus uh, Stunt Woman? Uh, we actually had to do a lot of it because, you know, you still have to show your face like, going, oh, you know, um, <laughs> so I was surprised by how much we actually had to do on our own. And I was that was one of the things that that excited me about the character and about doing the film was that that scene at the end with them. I love action movies, but I've never gotten a chance to do anything like that. And so I was looking forward to it and it was it was a lot of work uh we had an amazing stunt team who you know trained us they are the ones who do the uh big comic book movies so i felt like we were in really good hands and <laughs> yeah we just we just did it it was really fun to have you know two women just like grappling on the ground um and they saved it for the very last day we wrapped at 3 a.m and <laughs> I, I felt like I had been in a minor car accident the next day. <laughs> it was totally worth it. I, I'm really proud of myself. I was like, yeah, you did it. You had a baby, you know, and now you're the next fight. You're super mom. Look at you. <laughs> well, Hong Chow, thank you so much for the time here. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm just so, so happy for you uh, this year. And I, like I said, I, I think there's going to be uh, some more to come over the next couple of months. And uh, just can't wait uh, for what's to come in your career. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Matt. All right. You have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Bye. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to my interviews with the screenwriters for The Menu, Seth Reese and Will Tracy, director Mark Mylod, and star Hong Chow. The Menu is currently playing in theaters from Searchlight Pictures. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and we are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Watch them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.